Welcome to the 20th episode of Coronavirus The Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. Together, we also host the Hit Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode, along with helpful, fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin this show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What should our listeners know about the week that was? Jeremy, overall, what we're seeing is slight improvement, with positive tests having dropped from the 60 to 70,000 range to 40 to 50,000 new cases a day. Mortality remains around 1,000 people per day, and most of those dying remain high-risk individuals, elderly with comorbidities like high blood pressure, obesity, diabetes, cancer, and heart and lung disease. At the same time, we're likely to see a rapid rise over the next few weeks in the incidence of infection. One reason is how quickly the coronavirus is spreading at colleges. In our last episode, we talked about a few schools that have decided to close down, and now there are more than a dozen. And in some places, the infection rate is approaching a third of the entire student body. The second reason the cases will rise is the current Labor Day weekend, filled with parties and get-togethers. We experienced major increases after Memorial Day and July 4th, and this holiday won't be much different. Having said that, there are some very positive data recently published from Iceland, both on our body's response to the coronavirus and the overall mortality. Researchers tested 30,000 people and found antibody levels rose for two months after infection, and then stayed elevated for the full four months of study. There have been fears that immunity would be very short-lived. This data doesn't prove how effective the antibodies detected are, and of course a major viral mutation could create a true second wave. But these findings are very encouraging. In addition, the same researchers found that the mortality and the entire population studied was only 0.3%, much lower than many people had thought, and consistent with the estimates that we made on this show based on other less comprehensive analyses from California and New York City. Robbie, there were two big brouhaha's this week over indications for testing and treatment of patients with plasma. What happened? Jeremy, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, announced that people who are contacts of individuals with the coronavirus, but who are asymptomatic, don't need to be tested for the coronavirus. On one hand, this is foolish. These are the individuals who pose the greatest risk of spreading the infection to vulnerable people, 
specifically because they don't know they are a danger. On the other hand, given how long it takes currently to get testing results back, it's unclear that testing these individuals would make a huge difference at this time. By four or five days later, they will have spread the virus to dozens of people who may already be transmitting it to others. Some critics of the current administration saw the announcement as politically motivated to drive down the number of positive tests and claim the pandemic was under control. Others viewed the announcement as reflecting reality, given the backlog for most testing companies. The second issue we mentioned on our last show, it came from the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA's approval, to give emergency authorization for the use of plasma from patients who've recovered from COVID-19. Stephen Hahn, the head of the agency, erroneously claimed that the therapy had been proven to be life-saving. What's ensued has been a vitriolic clash over the motivation for the announcement. On one side are those who feel the FDA had caved to the president's desire for a miracle cure, reminiscent of the hydroxychloroquine fiasco. On the other hand, this type of treatment has been used since the Spanish flu with positive results. And other approvals for drugs like remdesivir were made without any evidence they saved lives and clear data to the contrary. Both the CDC and FDA walked back their announcements after criticism came from a wide range of scientists. Last week, we talked about the FDA approval of Yale's saliva test for coronavirus infection. You were optimistic about its potential, but wanted to see data. Although I'm sure it was coincidence, it came out this week. What did they find? Although the information was provided through a letter to the editor in the New England Journal of Medicine and still needs full peer review, it was extremely positive. Researchers at Yale looked at 70 hospitalized patients with COVID-19 and tested them using both the nasal swab technique and this new saliva-based one. They also reviewed data from 495 asymptomatic healthcare workers to ascertain detection in these individuals. In both cases, the saliva test proved as effective or possibly even slightly more effective than the nasopharyngeal swabs. A potential limitation of the study was that the specimens were obtained by the patients themselves rather than healthcare workers. It's possible that had the nasal swabs been done by healthcare professionals, that the results would have been more accurate and positive. The reason is that when it comes to the swab test, most of the false negatives are a result of sampling not the test itself. If the swab doesn't go back far enough, the specimen obtained can miss the virus entirely. This sampling problem isn't an issue with the saliva specimen test. As a result, we may find that the nasal swab approach could remain the testing method of choice in an ER or hospital, but as a broad screening tool capable of being performed at home the saliva approach seems promising, and this data is a positive step in the right direction. 
We also discussed people's likely resistance to a vaccine. The FDA also mentioned that it might approve vaccines before final results are in from phase three testing. How will people respond, do you think? And would you feel comfortable taking the vaccine? The concern about a vaccine heightened this week when FDA Commissioner Dr. Stephen Hahn told the Financial Times that his agency would consider an emergency use authorization for a COVID-19 vaccine before late-stage clinical trials are complete, if the data shows clear evidence it would protect people. An emergency use authorization is not the same as final approval, but it would make the vaccine available to patients sooner. Based on the opinions of scientists across the country, this is a bad idea. Unlike the standard vaccines, such as the ones against measles and tetanus, that have been around for decades and have proven nearly 100% safe, a new vaccine has significant risks. And one that has not been completely tested can prove harmful. Only in the most extreme circumstances, such as a disease with a 50 or 70% mortality, which this is definitely not, is premature use justified. For scientists, the idea of making a vaccine available before testing is final brings back memories of an initial polio vaccine administered to some patients before the currently available ones were developed. This premature vaccine ended up giving the actual disease to many of the recipients. Remember that phase three testing isn't even the final proof. It only involves tens of thousands of patients, not millions. Administering the vaccine before that is complete is risky. And to answer your question, I would not take the vaccine at that point. We don't know for sure that the vaccine works and subjecting large numbers of people to the potential risks would be an error. Similar to the two other examples we mentioned, this idea had to be walked back in the subsequent days. The level of public concern about the willingness of people to be vaccinated once a vaccine is available has public health officials greatly concerned. To try to combat the resistance, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services will be launching a public awareness campaign come November on TV, radio, and social media, focusing on vaccine safety and efficacy. It will likely include both celebrities and medical experts. We've known that men are faring worse in this pandemic than women, at least relative to mortality rates. What's the latest thinking as to why? Jeremy, when it comes to health, women in general do better than men. It's evidenced by the two-year longer life expectancy of women compared to men. In the coronavirus pandemic, the discrepancy between the sexes, particularly for elderly patients, has been even greater. Men have experienced a far higher chance of becoming critically ill and dying. A study in Nature demonstrated that the reason women do better is a stronger immune response compared to men, particularly as people age. According to the researchers, and I quote, female patients mounted significantly more robust T-cell activation than male patients, 
during SARS-CoV-2 infection. For listeners who may not be in medicine, T-cells are a type of white cell that searches out and destroys invaders to our body. The ability to produce these lymphocytes declines with age, but does so faster in men than women, according to the study. If these findings are confirmed, they could influence recommendations around vaccines, including more or higher doses for older men than women. Robbie, a listener wrote in and wanted information on what is a super spreader. Can, can you explain the concept of a super spreader? Sure, Jeremy. What we know is that 80% of COVID-19 cases can be traced back to 20% of individuals who have been infected. This led to the term super spreader, implying that there's something about the person that makes him or her more contagious. Instead, however, it's probably a question of the environment rather than the person. A better term would be super spreader event. As an example, a single medical conference hosted by Biogen at the Marriott Long Wharf Hotel in February likely led to 20,000 COVID-19 cases in the greater Boston area. This accounted for 40% of the total coronavirus cases in Boston as of July And of course, transmission extended, not just to Boston, but around many other parts of the United States and to other nations. Similarly, a recent Sturgis motorcycle rally is shaping up as a similar super spreader event. One of the most important things people can do who do not want to get COVID-19 is to avoid these large events with large crowds, invariably someone will have the virus and will spread it to many in attendance. There is a claim that has recently gone viral on social media and has been talked about frequently that only 6% of the people who died of COVID died from COVID alone, as in they did not have underlying health conditions. President Trump even retweeted the following tweet, which was since deleted by Twitter. Um, This week, the CDC quietly updated the COVID numbers to admit that only 6% of the 153,504 deaths recorded actually died from COVID. That's 9,210 deaths. The other 94% had two to three other serious illnesses, and the overwhelming majority were of very advanced age. I have heard numerous people cite this statistic, and numerous others say that it is wrong. Uh, I have heard a few other people say that This is all uh, confusion and misunderstanding around how death certificates work and that if you have had to fill them out before or have an understanding of how they work, there's really no confusion at all. Can you clear up some of the confusion on this, explain what's going on, and perhaps explain a little bit about how death certificates work? This is a very, very good example of how statistics can be used for lots of purposes besides scientific ones. The 6% number is being used by people of all persuasions for political, not scientific reasons. 
several months ago on this show, we talked about the data from New York City that showed that 94% of people who die from COVID-19 have at least one chronic disease. As such, one could attribute a patient's death to this associated factor, not the infection itself. But of course, that's absurd. People who die with diabetes or who had hypertension didn't all die from the associated problem, but most died instead from the coronavirus itself. This is the difference between causation and correlation. What we know is that the number of deaths being reported isn't exact. That's the truth. What we also know is that those of one political persuasion will tell people that the number of deaths is inflated since some of the people who died would have anyway given their heart problem or lung problem. And people of the opposite persuasion will argue that the number is underreported due to people dying at home from heart or lung problems without having been tested for COVID and therefore knowing that the virus was responsible. And they're both technically right, but they're both missing the point. And this is what happens when politics dominates science. When a patient dies, most often the physician takes a best guess at what the primary cause was and what the associated problems were. Are they 100% accurate? No. But do they get it right the overwhelming majority of the time? The answer is yes. The number of people that physicians assume died from COVID-19 who actually died from an associated problem is relatively small. And the number of people who died at home and were assumed to have had a heart attack who actually had COVID is equally small. At a level of magnitude, we can assume that the numbers that we are seeing relative to mortality are moderately accurate. What we also know is that the numbers related to disease frequency are clearly wrong with the actual numbers being anywhere from five to 10 times higher. You know, we talk about there being 6 million people with the virus in the United States. It's at least 30 million. Statistics can be true numbers and yet be distorted for personal and political reasons. That is a major problem when it comes to a pandemic. Robbie, I'm very worried about the psychological impact this virus is having. Um, I've heard more and more people in the Iowa City community wondering if it will ever end. And it's also kind of causing division between people who are taking it more seriously and people who are taking it less seriously in terms of school reopening, you know, college football, whether that should be restaurants, bars, small, how it's affecting small businesses, etc. Um, is this just an Iowa thing? I mean, how are people on the coast and in big cities feeling about this? Jeremy, your concerns are very justified. 
Weekly surveys conducted by the U.S. Census Bureau from late April through late July show that 44% of adult respondents in California, where the study was done, reported high levels of anxiety and major gloom, symptoms commonly associated with generalized anxiety disorder and major depressive disorder. Although I haven't seen data specific to Iowa, given the huge economic impact this pandemic has had and the associated crop destruction that happened from the recent storms, I'd predict the problems would be just as great in Iowa as in California, if not higher. And given what's happened in California now, with the unseasonably high temperatures and raging forest fires, with loss of buildings and loss of life, I think the psychological problems are going to become increasingly great in this fall reporting time period. I believe that we have underestimated all of the impact that this virus has caused, underestimated the impact it's had physiologically on our blood vessels, on our heart, on our mental satisfaction, and underestimated the impact it has had and is having on society in general. Jeremy, speaking about Iowa, it is now the state with the highest incidence of coronavirus infection. Iowa State College in Ames is planning to have a crowd of 25,000 for its football opener. What's going on? Robbie, I'm in the Iowa City area, as you know, and I know that when the University of Iowa college students returned for the fall, you know, many of them went out and went to parties and bars or participated in large protests for various causes, you know, hung out in apartments, etc. Um, the virus then spread through the student population like wildfire. I've actually heard it hit the freshmen in the dorms particularly hard by nature of how confined they are. Um, and I think that people in that age gap know they will almost for sure not die or have long-term damage. People that age feel like they're immortal. And I, I kind of think it's naive that if people that age can't be expected to follow, you know, drinking laws, parents and colleges realistically can't expect them to follow the guidelines set forth about the virus. Local bars have since uh, been forced to close and restaurants are now forced to close earlier in the evening than they had previously um, as an effort to kind of, you know, squash the, the, the big groups partying together. And this has kind of had a ripple effect through the city with some panicking in the school district, you know, making the first two and potentially more weeks of school online only. I think parents and colleges need to have realistic expectations for college students about their willingness to follow rules and guidelines. If they're going to be in town together and have things like football games, they're going to be gathering in groups, uh, you know, and also whether it's for bars and parties, protests, cookout, hanging out in small apartments or dorms, colleges need to understand how people that age act and plan accordingly. Jeremy, meatpacking facilities have a very high rate of coronavirus infections, 
with major implications for supermarkets and grocery stores. It's my understanding that a major reason is that the workers in these plants are elbow to elbow while they work incredibly hard. Now, I know you work in video and in high tech, not in farming, but can you give us on the East and West Coasts some information about why the plants can't adjust? I'd hate to see another outbreak with further disruption to the food chain. Well, luckily, the grocery stores look a lot better now than at the beginning of the pandemic and a lot more normal. Um, now, a lot of meatpacking plants employ immigrant labor, um, and it's a lot of people that even live in the same houses and community together. And they're jobs that you know not a lot of people want to have as it's hard work, long hours, and to be honest, kind of a gross job. Uh, and it's in very close quarters. These plants are often set up in super tight spaces where social distancing really isn't an option unless they want reduced output, which would then in turn again affect prices and supply chain. Um, shutting these plants down temporarily has had a negative effect on the supply chain and what is in grocery stores and thus has had an impact on livestock prices for farmers and then in turn meat prices for consumers. You know, and one way to kind of stock up and protect yourself a little bit is I would actually recommend to anyone that can to stock up on meat from a local meat locker, you know, buy a half a hog or quarter of a cow and deep freeze it. Um, this is a pretty common practice around here. I'm not sure about the coasts or other areas. Um, but I will say, though, is, you know, last time I checked, there was quite a long list for, you know, buying a quarter, uh, quarter cow or half a hog from a meat locker. One of the president's healthcare advisors talked about herd immunity, and it was greeted with negativity from healthcare experts. What's happened in Sweden, and what can we learn? Despite the optimism some have about a safe and effective vaccine coming soon, other medical advisors warn that this is unlikely. And if that's the case, the idea of generating herd immunity through infection comes to the fore. And this is very controversial, as Sweden has shown. The idea would be to let the virus infect somewhere around 150 to 200 million Americans who were at low risk, while protecting those at the greatest risk, such as residents of nursing homes who are more than 60 times as likely to die when infected compared to relatively healthy people in their 40s and 50s. Once two-thirds of the population has been infected and developed antibodies, the virus would have fewer people it could then infect, and it would die out. Although in the short run, the process would increase the total number of deaths, if there were no effective vaccine for two or more years, the approach theoretically would diminish the total number of deaths in the long run. The problem is we can't be sure about the timing when it comes to vaccine production. And guessing wrong would have huge negative consequences. Unfortunately, as we're seeing more and more Every conversation on the coronavirus, rather than focusing on the science, is devolving into politics. 
No one at the policy, the media, the national level seems to want to talk about the facts and do what business leaders call scenario planning. The American people need the truth and a plan based on that, but they don't have it. If a vaccine isn't available for two years, Americans need to understand how will our nation respond. It's a real possibility. And if a vaccine works, but it's only 75% effective, they need to know what we will do. If the vaccine's only taken by a small proportion of the population, maybe those who get the flu vaccine each year, here's what will happen. They need to be told. The reason for scenario planning is that it is much better to consider the options in advance and do the necessary contingency planning than to make everything a last-minute emergent decision. As an example, will states make vaccination mandatory for all school children, as they currently do with some other vaccines? Will all healthcare workers be required to take the vaccine as a condition of employment? What about public employees, bus drivers, individuals who work for Uber and Lyft? These are the kinds of questions that we need to be thinking about now. They will have massive impact on how quickly our nation can end this pandemic once a vaccine is here. However, no one in Congress, state legislatures, or policy wonks on Sunday TV shows wants to opine on these vital questions. They seem to prefer to make it seem like a vaccine will be here soon and drive the virus away and everything will return to normal. It can't. The Swedish experience is equally controversial. Rather than shutting down the country, leaders decided to let the virus expand. They kept schools, businesses, and gyms open, although they did ban gatherings of over 50 people. After an initial spike in deaths, concentrated in long-term facilities in Stockholm, the mortality has declined. Those opposed to the idea of pursuing herd immunity point to the lower mortality in other Scandinavian countries like Norway. Those who like the idea believe the trends will reverse in the future as soon as herd immunity happens, and Sweden will have benefited greatly from their approach. And they point to the recent rise in the number of cases and deaths in European nations that seemingly had the virus under control as proof of their point of view. At the same time, what's confounding about all of this information is a report from the Journal of the Royal Society of Medicine, which found that only 15% of the population in Stockholm had had the virus. And if the number of cases is relatively low, maybe what they did had only a minimum impact on spread, despite the limited social distancing required. And if that's the case, none of the data may mean much. And the difference in mortality, rather than reflecting the governmental policy, would be a result of population variation and issues specific to long-term facilities. 
At this point, we don't have enough information to reach a valid conclusion. It most likely will be two years or even longer before a final verdict can be reached. And even then, I predict there'll be differences of opinion based on the assumptions individuals make. What we know is that in a country as large as the United States, this virus will take the lives of hundreds of thousands more people by the time the pandemic is over. A recent survey of Americans in advance of the November election showed that the coronavirus remains the number one concern of people at 46%, followed by healthcare more generally at 25%, and it's far ahead of issues like immigration, climate, and gun violence. But right behind it, at 24%, was the polarization of American politics. What's happening on the political front is proving to be just as dangerous to the health of people and our entire nation as the virus itself. As a physician, I find this tragic. Unfortunately, most observers are even more skeptical that we'll have a solution to this malady anytime in the foreseeable future than to the coronavirus itself. Finally, a listener wrote, to ask about the decision of the United States not to join other nations in taking a global approach to the vaccine, but instead to go it alone. He wanted to know what you thought about that decision. Jeremy, he's correct. The Trump administration reported that it will not work with other nations on distributing a vaccine because it doesn't want to be constrained by organizations like the World Health Organization. More than 150 nations are working on COVAX, or the COVID-19 Vaccines Global Access Facility. The theoretical advantage of this effort is that by pooling resources, all nations could access whichever vaccine proves best among the over 100 being developed worldwide. For smaller and poorer nations, this will be vital. At the same time, there are no legal restraints on vaccine manufacturers. They can choose to sell to the United States despite our country not participating. And the government has already hedged its bets by working with several companies, both in the US and globally. As such, the advantages are fewer. And of course, if we joined, we'd be expected to share the available vaccine with the other participatory nations. As in so many areas, such as climate control, what seems most advantageous when viewed through a global lens becomes less desirable for individual nations. The coronavirus is proving no different. What we need when it comes to this virus are facts, and strategic planning, but both are in short supply. The headlines scream about the number of people with the disease and fail to recognize that it's only a small proportion of the total number of individuals with COVID-19. We point to 180,000 deaths, which are tragic but we fail to acknowledge how many people invariably will die when any new virus comes to a nation 
of 330 million people. We embrace fake treatments because they're politically advantageous when we talk about expensive medications that are unlikely to have much positive impact. But we fail to wear masks proven to lower transmission in half and so on and so on. We couldn't have done a much worse job if we had tried. And that goes to just about everyone, with the exception of the valiant healthcare workers and first responders who risked and sacrificed their lives to save others. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple, Podcasts, and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. Thank you very much for listening to Coronavirus The Truth and have a great day.